In Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, there's a famous line. I mean, like me, you may have never read the novel, but you've heard the line. In the novel, one character asks another how he went bankrupt. And the character who went bankrupt says, uh, there's two ways, gradually and then suddenly. It turns out that's a pretty good description for a lot of things we experience in life, right? Our health declines, maybe gradually at first, and then all of a sudden, it seems, things come upon us. And I think this is an apt description for the way some human beings experience their alienation from God. It may seem at first like no big deal, a gradual series of choices that they make in their own wisdom and their own authority, but then there will come a suddenly, a suddenly in which they face the Lord, the day that death and judgment comes upon them, gradually, then suddenly. I think this psalm gives us a, an inkling of that. It begins by questioning, why do the nations rage? It recounts the rebellion of mankind against God, and yet it assures mankind that judgment will come, that God is not thwarted by our rebellion, that his wrath is kindled against our rebellion, that we should honor the sun, kiss the sun, lest we perish in the way. The psalm doesn't want us to be deceived by our gradual march away from the Lord. The psalm wants us to know that death may come suddenly, and it calls us to worship. As we look through this psalm this morning, we're going to use a, a summary statement to, to understand it and then work through this summary as our sermon point. So here's the summary of Psalm 2. Our rebellion is in vain because the Lord has established his king, his son, who judges and saves all people. The wise repent and take refuge in him. So we'll work through those statements there. Our rebellion is in vain, that's statement one, because the Lord has installed his king, that's statement two. Three, the king is God's son, the savior and judge of all. And finally, the wise repent and take refuge in him. Once again, our rebellion is in vain because the Lord has established his king, his son who judges and saves all people. The wise repent and take refuge in him. So let's begin by looking at the fact that our rebellion is in vain. Let's read the first three verses of Psalm 2. Listen to God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This psalm opens with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist puts it this way, not because he's ignorant of the answer. He's going to tell us. He's very under, familiar with why the nations do this. It's his way of saying, what's the point? Why waste time rebelling against the Lord and his anointed? In verse 2, it becomes clear that this raging and what this raging and plotting is all about. They conspire to oppose the Lord himself and his anointed one. They've stirred themselves up against God and his appointed king. 
And then in verse 3 of this stanza, we hear from the rebels, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. It's noteworthy that Christians throughout history have, have enjoyed using this psalm to quote against their enemies. So one commentator I read noted that Sir Walter Raleigh read this psalm in regard to the Spanish Armada about to attack England. We love to look at the other nations out there. Those are enemies that are raging against the Lord, and we're on the Lord's side, right? So as we read the psalm, one of the kind of the pools we're going to experience is, who, who is this about? Who are these nations that are raging? Who are these rebels who reject God's rule? If we think back to what we looked at last week in Psalm 1, we recall that the blessed man meditated on God's word. He delighted in the law of the Lord. The same word that lies behind meditate in Psalm 1 is behind the word plot in Psalm 2, verse 1. So the blessed meditate on God's law, but these men and and these kings of Psalm uh, Psalm 2, they meditate on their hatred of God. They meditate against the Lord. They mutter about their hatred of the Lord and his anointed king. And this helps us see a couple of things about rebellion against God. First, rebellion is personal. They've set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one. The covenant name of God is used here. Lord, your Bible may have it in in small caps, indicating the name Yahweh, the name that he revealed to Israel on Mount Sinai. So they are against the God who saves Israel and who dwells among his people. That's who these, are, these who, uh, rebels of verse 1 are against. And they're also against the anointed one, it says. But Jeff gave us a little bit of intro to that. Anointed one in, in the Greek language is translated as Christ. And so our English Bibles just transliterate that as Christ. Jesus' title is anointed one. In the Old Testament, if you read Hebrew, you would maybe recognize the word Messiah. So they they rage against the Lord and his Messiah. The Messiah is the one anointed by God uh, in this place to be king, but anointing is used throughout the Old Testament to set somebody apart to serve God. So the priests were anointed. According to the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, anointing symbolized both authorization to serve And God's promise to empower somebody for that service. So listen to the account of David's anointing in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So David is set apart, authorized to be king, and given power by God. The spirit comes upon him. Those who reject God's rule, then they focus their hatred on God's anointed, empowered representative. They're against the Lord, and specifically, especially, they're against his anointed king. David is kind of the anointed one par excellence in the Old Testament. He is the ultimate example. But the psalm doesn't name David here. Probably it's written by David, but it's intentionally speaking in vague terms. You could say it maybe speaks about the entire Davidic kingship, so David and all of his sons. But we know from the New Testament scriptures that this psalm, in speaking of the anointed one, is all about Christ. He is the Lord's anointed. This is how the apostles themselves, so those who learn from Christ, this is how they interpreted Psalm 2. 
They quote it in Acts chapter 4. You might remember that in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are dragged before the Jewish leaders. And they are ordered not to preach the gospel anymore. So after they are released from custody, they gather with their friends and they tell them all that happened. And then Acts 4, verses 24 through 28, records a prayer that these people prayed together in light of what's happened to James and John. This is what they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want you to note a couple of key questions they answer for us. Who is the anointed? Well, the anointed one is Jesus. They're really clear about that. But it also answers a question I raised a few minutes ago. Who is this psalm about? Who are these nations who rage? Who are these who have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed? Well, in their prayer, these people say, Truly, in this city, Jerusalem, there are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, the Jewish ruler, Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, along with the Gentiles, so the people under the, Jew, or the Roman ruler, and the peoples of Israel. It's everybody. It's Jews and Gentiles and their rulers. They're all represented here. They've all gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So this psalm is not one that Jews can read against Gentiles and say, those evil Gentiles, they hate you. The scripture is saying, no, this applies to God's own people who rejected Jesus. It's not something that Americans can use against our enemies or the British can use against the Spanish Armada, right? This indicts all of us. We are all those who rage against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed one. So rebellion against God is personal. This is something that we often deceive ourselves about. Have you ever found yourself angry? And maybe your spouse or someone close to you says, what are you, what are you angry at or who are you angry at? And you say, nobody. I'm just, I'm just angry. I'm angry at my circumstances. I'm just frustrated. Now, no doubt, our lives are filled with frustrations. But we're in a pat- when we are in a pattern of sin, we deliberately refuse to connect the dots between our sin and God. We don't want to own up to the fact that our attitudes and actions are against him and against Christ. We don't want to admit that our lack of contentment is a, is a lack of contentment with what God has provided. We don't want to admit that we're grumbling against the discipline that his fatherly hand has brought into our lives. Our rebellion against God is always personal. It's against him. These rebellious people of Psalm 2 are at least clear about that. They're out with their rebellion. They're open about it. Rebellion is personal against the Lord and his Christ. Lest you think, though, that we should admire these rebels in any way, there is another sense in which they are very deceived. 
when they are given the opportunity to speak in verse 3, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the second aspect of rebellion. It's perverse. It's self-deceiving. It gets things upside down and backwards. Again, consider how the rebels of Psalm 2 compare to the blessed man of Psalm 1. The blessed man delighted in the law of the Lord. We remember last week we talked about how the law can both refer to the rules that God ordained, but also to God's covenant with his people. The blessed man delighted in these things. He delighted in the way God had made a way for sinful men to be uh, reconciled to God through the atonement of the sacrifices. The blessed man delights in the fact that God lives among his people, that they can have fellowship with him. The blessed man delights in the gracious rule of God, but the rebellious view God's rules like a set of shackles. That's what these bonds and, and cords are referring to. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords. These would be maybe cords that an enemy king would use to, to bind someone he's captured. That's how they view God's good rule. They see God's rule as something to be cast off. They believe that freedom and joy lie outside of God's rule. When our hearts are rebellious, that's what we believe, isn't it? That sin will give us freedom and joy. We run away from God. We seek to burst off God's good rule. We call God's good rule shackles, something constraining. We buck against it. We pull against it the way your dog pulls against his leash when he sees another dog, right? So the rebels are deceived. We're deceived by the promises that our world makes to us, that our flesh makes to us, that the devil makes to us. We believe that we know in ourselves what the good life is and how to achieve it. And in our deception, we deny that there will be any consequences for our rebellion. We deny that sin is enslaving. But the psalmist would have us see that all of this rebellion is in vain, is worthless. Rejecting the Lord's rule gets us nowhere. And it's actually worse than worthless because rejecting the Lord's rule earns us God's righteous wrath. And that leads us to the second part of this psalm. The Lord has installed his king. Rebellion is in vain because the Lord has installed his king. So after we hear from the rebellious, we hear their deceived words as they try to throw off the bonds of God. We see what the Lord thinks of their rebellion in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We have to take care in how we interpret this passage that's describing the Lord. We've all seen movies where the villain laughs his evil laugh, right? He's rubbing his hands together. He's plotting his next move. He's he's full of pride and evil. We should not interpret the Lord's laughter here like we interpret the the cheesy villain. We shouldn't project that onto Christ. The the Lord uses human language so that we can understand him, but we can't ascribe to God our sinful human emotions. 
So the Lord is not cruel or quick-tempered. He's not a vain fool. His laughter and derision reveal the worthlessness of our rebellion. They reveal to us that the Lord is not impressed by our pride or our power. To use a human way of speaking, the Lord is not kept up at night worrying about the plots of these evil kings and what they're going to do next. What is portrayed here is a picture of God's transcendence and independence. We might say the picture of God in verse 4 is kind of the other side of the coin of the image of God we get in Isaiah 66.1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is, my place, what is the place of my rest? What does the Lord need from his people? And the answer is nothing. What can man's best efforts add to God? What can man's most rebellious plans do to God? He who sits in the heavens laughs at these rebellious plans. He holds them in derision. Nothing we can do can thwart God's plans. But that doesn't mean that God takes no notice of our rebellious plans. So in verse 5 we see that his wrath is aroused against rebellion. Because the Lord is holy, he cannot tolerate evil. And so wrath is his holy response to rebellious humans. Again, we should guard against projecting our experience of wrath and fury onto God. Like when we have those emotions, they're almost always out of control, right? We even use the expression, I lost it, to describe our fury. But God doesn't lose it. He does not break into uncontrollable rages. Rather, his fury is the righteous, appropriate, measured response to sin against his holiness. When sinners say that his goodness is slavery, when they oppose his anointed one who came to save, the Lord responds in the only appropriate way, with righteous wrath. In our rebellion, we make God our enemies. We earn his wrath. The wages of sin is death. But then look at the way the Lord's righteous anger is expressed in verse 6. He doesn't unleash a fury of curses. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord refers back to what he's already done. He's established his anointed one on his throne. Zion is a name for the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built. It was God's dwelling place on earth, and it comes to refer to Jerusalem itself and eventually God's holy people. The kings of the earth rebel against God, but their rebellion takes away nothing from what he's already done, that he set his king on his throne. The Lord has established his anointed one as king. The Lord rules. Rebels can do all that, all that we want. We can muster all of our energies to oppose God, but we change nothing about the Lord's ruler established on his throne, the Lord's king. The end of the psalm will bring us back to the Lord's holy rule, but before we leave, we should give some thought to the immovability of God's rule. The Lord's holy rule is a law greater than gravity. And it's an unavoidable reality. The Lord rules. He's established his king. 
you know, in the, in the wedding vows, we say, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. We might say, what God has established, no man can unestablish. No man can take away. No man can move. We may delude ourselves for a while with the idea that we rule ourselves, that we can do our own thing. But we're right back to where we started, right? Falling away suddenly, uh, gradually, then suddenly. We delude ourselves for a while, but then the Lord calls us to account. One of the, the temptations and the lies that modern life tells us and makes it easy to believe is that we can craft our little citadels of self-rule. We can dial up personalized entertainment and we can build walls to keep out unpleasant or annoying things from creeping in. We can become rather comfortable and feel safe even in our rebellion, but it won't last. The Lord does rule. Christ is the Savior and the Judge. We may reject him, We may try to ignore him, but that does not change the fact that he rules. And one day, our little castle will crumble. It could happen this afternoon or 30 years from now, but we will stand before the one who sits in the heavens. His rule is unshakable. God has established his king. In the next section of the song, we move from hearing the Lord's unshakable word about his king to hearing the voice of the king himself. So the king has been established, and now he speaks to us. The Lord's anointed one recounts the decree that the Lord has made concerning him. He is the Lord's own son, and all the nations are his inheritance, he says. So read with me, beginning in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's likely that these words would have been used during a coronation ritual for Israel's kings. So perhaps these words were like the king's oath of office that he would have recited when he took the throne. We see here that these kings in David's line become heirs of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised to be a father to the kings and they would be his sons. We might say that the kings at the point of their taking the throne are adopted as sons. And as obedient sons, they were then to ask God for the things that he'd promised him. So they were to ask him for the inheritance, which is the ends of the earth and the nations. These kings, these sons, were to live by faith in God's decree and to rule by that same faith. But again, we know that these words weren't just about Davidic kings in the Old Testament. So earlier in our service, Heather read for us part of Paul's sermon from Antioch and Pisidia in Acts 13. And Paul says that these words from Psalm 2 were fulfilled in Jesus Specifically, Paul ties the decree of Psalm 2-7 to the resurrection of Jesus. This is one of the wonderful truths we, we confess when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. By that little phrase, that title, Son of God, we mean that he is the eternal Son. He has lived forever 
at God's right hand. He is the Son of the Father for all eternity past and present and future. He is and always has been the Son of God. But we also say that he is the the Son of God who took on flesh. So the eternal Son became the incarnate Son. He was born of a woman. And because of his perfect obedience, he lived out sonship as a man on the earth. An obedience that took him all the way to the cross. And he rose from the dead. And Romans 1.4 says that at his resurrection from the dead, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. So by the phrase the Son of God, we can talk about the Son of God in eternity past, who who became the obedient Son in David's line and is now the glorious, exalted Son of God, sitting at God's right hand. We see this in Hebrews chapter 1, where Jesus is called the Son of God. None of the angels are given that title, but Jesus is the name that is above every name. We see Jesus praying just before he died in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So since Jesus ascended and sat down at God's right hand, he's been enjoying that glory that he prayed for when he was a man on earth. He prayed for this glory, and now he's enjoying that glory. He's been glorified with the glory that he had before the world began. He is the Son of God, both because of his divine nature, and he's the Son of God because of what he did in the flesh in dying for sin and raising again from the dead. What I want you to see is that the gospel itself is hidden in this declaration about Jesus. The Lord said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It tells us about this eternal son of God who took on flesh and accomplished our salvation. All according to God's plan. And now he lives and rules over all things forever. The rest of this section then tells us about the the rights and privileges that Christ earned as the Son. The nations are his inheritance. God gave him authority over the ends of the earth. Here in Psalm 2, that authority is expressed in terms of judgment. He is the righteous judge. He will break these nations with a rod of iron. These these kings and rulers of the earth and their peoples who reject the Lord's anointed one, they're going to reap what they sow. They will face the glorious Son with his rod in his hand. So the reign of Christ is bad news for those who oppose him and who do not repent. But here is also good news for Christ, for those who, who are in Christ. There's good news here that Jesus is the Son. And Paul makes it clear in, in Acts chapter 13 what that good news is. That Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, and and that makes it possible for forgiveness to be proclaimed. Because Jesus the Son died and rose again. He's able to do for his people, Paul says, what the law of Moses could not do. He frees us from the power of sin and death. So by faith in Christ, sinners are declared righteous, and we are raised from death to life. Enemies who repent and believe in Christ share in the life of the resurrected Son of God. We're given the right to be called children of God. 
In a roundabout way, Jesus also picks up on Psalm 2 ideas to proclaim the good news. So in Matthew 28, when Jesus is giving what we call the Great Commission, he picks up themes from Psalm 2. We see that this glorious son is, is given the ends of the earth as his possession. Well, what does Jesus say when he's giving his commission? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. The glorious son has received his possession, his inheritance, all authority over the ends of the earth. And what does he do? He doesn't break out his rod of judgment. He commissions his disciples to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the anointed son of God does not only judge the nations, he came to save them. He is the savior and judge. The, the anointed one that the Lord established on his throne in, in section 2 of the psalm is revealed here to be the one who has inherited the nations. And he uses that authority to bless the nations with his saving work. So Jesus is the son who rules and saves all people. And this brings us to the last part of the psalm. The, the second sentence in our summary The wise serve God with fear and joy. The wise repent and take refuge in the Lord. The wise repent and take refuge in the Lord. Having heard the Lord's word, that the Lord has established his king, and having heard the anointed one declare his glorious rule, the psalmist leaves us with the application of the psalm here. He leaves us with a warning, a command, and an invitation. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Again, we see here the application of the psalm. So the psalmist has brought us face to face with the reality of God's immovable rule. He's brought us face to face with the anointed ruler who is the Savior and Judge, and now he tells us how we should live. And he begins with a warning. Be wise and be warned, it says in verse 10. This is addressed to these kings and rulers of the earth, but it also includes their nations and their people. And as we've already said, this includes all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. This warning is tied to the command, later on, kiss the Son, which means to honor the Son. We should honor him as God's anointed king. And the punchline of the warning is there in verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The way of rebellion is the way that leads to death. Rebellion earns us the wrath of the Lord's anointed. This is another point to draw our minds back to what we looked at in Psalm 1. Look at the way that Psalm 1 ends. If you just scan up to verse 6, The way of the wicked will perish. When we look at these psalms together, we get a full picture of that way, that way of the wicked that leads to death. It's the way that rejects God's rule and rejects God's salvation. And the two are tied together. Even the law of the Lord reveals God's rule and God's grace. Certainly, the anointed one of the Lord reveals God's rule and God's grace. And so we see that there's a a twin rejection 
We reject God's rule over us through his law and through his king. But then we take it a step further. Not only do we rebel against God's rule, but we reject the salvation that God would offer us in his son. If we're tempted to believe that the good life can be found in ruling over ourselves, Psalm 1 and 2 are here to show us how foolish that is. Whatever joy we find outside of Christ, those are the fleeting pleasures of sin. And by doing that, we're turning away from the only one who can save us. And so if you're on that path, be wise, be warned. If you're trying to live your life ignoring God's word or without submitting to Christ, wake up. See where you're going. The judgment of God can break out at any time. You're not promised your next breath. Be warned, lest you perish in the way. Once again, the psalmist tells us of the wrath of God. It says here that it's quickly kindled. Again, this doesn't mean that Jesus is like a a touchy, angry person who's likely to fly off the handle. But it does tell us that his anger over sin is perfectly righteous. Bruce Waltke says that God adorns himself with glory and honor when he unleashes the fury of his wrath and human hubris is brought low. If we're walking in rebellion, then we're walking in the way that the Lord opposes. And one day the blazing glory of God's wrath will be revealed against that way. He will cast everyone who opposes his anointed one into hell. We should be warned. If we've heeded this warning and this call to wisdom, then we see that we are commanded to serve the Lord and kiss the Son, as I said. The way of wisdom and the good life is the life of serving God. And here with these two commands, the psalmist fleshes out what it means to serve God. It means to kiss the Son. So we serve God by honoring his son. The word serve here is more than just mere obedience. It means to worship the Lord. So we're commanded to worship God in the way that he's called us to worship. We approach God in the way that he's established through the son. So the only way to rightly worship God is by honoring the son, Jesus Instead of raging against the Lord and his anointed one, we're commanded to worship him through his anointed one. And so here is the blessed way, the way that leads to life. But the psalmist doesn't leave it there. He even tells us how we're to honor the son. He tells us that we're to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Well, that's a strange combination of words, right? Fear, joy, trembling. It doesn't sound necessarily like a healthy relationship, if that were a human one. But these these words don't mean that our, our relationship with God should be marked by constant terror. Instead, they tell us a couple of things about true worship. And so first we see that true worship comes from the heart. Fear gets to this aspect of true worship. Fear of God is the conviction in our hearts that God is as glorious and great as he says he is. And so when scriptures instruct us to fear the Lord, they're instructing us to trust God completely. God is teaching our hearts to be in awe at his graciousness, at his great holiness. 
So worship the Lord with fear is telling us that worship is not an outward formal ritual. God doesn't want rebels simply to make a show of recognizing him. Think back to those who crucified Christ. Weren't many of them outwardly very worshipful? But they reveal by opposing Christ that they had no fear of God. They were happy to go along with outward rituals, but they didn't truly trust the Lord. The Lord desires worship from the heart. He desires for us to have a conviction that he is awesome. That the Son of God came to bring sinners into relationship with their awesome God. And that gets us to what it means to rejoice with trembling. Worship from the heart leads to a true and profound joy. A joy that overcomes and overwhelms all other joys. It's a joy that wonders when we ask, why should the Lord be so kind to rebels? Why should the Lord call us to rejoice and tremble in his presence? Why should the Son of God take upon ourselves, take upon himself our sin? We should tremble with joy at the revelation that the holy and glorious God is the gracious, saving God. This last line of the psalm is God's gracious invitation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we've seen perhaps what we might think as polar opposites in God. God laughing at our rebellion and holding us in derision. And God inviting us to take refuge. He offers our flailing efforts to oppose him the ridicule that we deserve. But even his ridicule serves a gracious purpose. It's a warning purpose. He warns us so that we will turn to him, so that we won't continue down the way that leads to death. If we repent of our rebellion and come to God by faith in the Son, we will not meet God's wrath will encounter God's salvation, will be granted refuge. And the gospel tells us how this can be so. How can it be that rebels receive refuge? After all, the Lord made us to live in this happy, holy estate of worship, but we rebelled against him. So the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they ignored and rejected God's command, they kicked off the rage of the nations. God could have left humanity in our sins, but he did not. He promised to send a man born of a woman who would crush the power of sin and death. And Jesus was that man, the Son of God, who became man and lived the blessed life of Psalm 1, who delighted in God's law and meditated upon it day and night. And he is the anointed of Psalm 2, who rules as God's king, God's perfectly obedient son. And yet his obedience took him to the cross. Despite his righteousness, Jesus suffered the wrath of God that rebels deserve. He died, offering his life as an atoning ransom for sinners. And on the third day, he was raised in glory, the eternal son. He became the obedient son who died for sinners and then rose as the glorified son who sat down at God's right hand. And those who come to God through him, through this son, those who kiss the son... Find refuge in him instead of wrath. The application of this psalm is to repent and believe in the Son of God. That's how we find refuge. 
It calls us to stop trying to break off the bonds of Christ's rule. Instead, come and see that submitting to Christ is the way to life. Christ rules from the cross. He's the crucified king. He's both Savior of sinners and Lord of all the earth. And so the warning and invitation of this psalm says, Come to the Son and be saved, but woe to those who reject his salvation. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner ended his commentary on Psalm 2 with these words. What fear and pride interpret as bondage is in fact security and bliss. The rule of Christ, the reign of Christ. What fear and pride interpret as bondage is in fact security and bliss. And there is no refuge from him, only in him. There is no refuge from Christ, only in Christ. There is no refuge from Christ. You can try to throw off his rule. You can keep trying to live your life without him. But none of those attempts will change the fact that he rules. He is king. If you don't admit your sin and turn to Christ for salvation, you will face the full weight of his wrath. There's no hole you can hide in. There's no excuse you can offer. There is no refuge from Christ. There is only refuge in Christ. In Christ, we have refuge who trusts in him because he bore the penalty of our sin. We're forgiven. God's wrath is turned away. In Christ, there is refuge because the obedient son wraps us in his righteousness. And so we can stand in the day of judgment. In Christ, we have refuge because those who believe in him are given the right to be called sons of God. We will receive a share in Christ's own inheritance. Christ is our refuge because in Christ we have life and peace with God forever. By faith in Christ, we fear the Lord. We rejoice and tremble before our great and awesome God, the righteous God who made us, who rules us, and who rescues us. The psalm calls us to repent and take refuge in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for eyes to see the glory of our Savior Jesus. We praise and thank you that the Son of God took on flesh for our sake, that he suffered in our place, and that he rose again to conquer sin and death and offers us life by faith in him. That is why we're here this morning. We are the company of the resurrected. We are sons of God by faith in the Son of God. But Father, we pray that you will help us to live lives of faith, turning away from our rebellion, turning away from any attempt to rule ourselves, and finding hope in Christ. We praise and thank you that there is refuge for us in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.